Welcome to China in Context. I am Duncan Bartlett. Lloyd Austin, the US Defense Secretary, sent a clear message to China this summer. He said, the more we talk, the more we can avoid misunderstandings and miscalculations that could lead to crisis or conflict. The Chinese side continues to reject US overtures to hold high-level security talks a situation which creates concern among those surveying the security landscape in Asia. So why do the Chinese keep saying no to military dialogue? And what might draw them to the negotiating table? Here to help us grapple with these questions is an expert with deep knowledge of Chinese politics. I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Howard Zhang, China editor at the BBC. Howard, it's wonderful that you can join us again. Hi, Duncan. Thank you for the opportunity. The administration of Joe Biden has repeatedly asked China to engage in a high-level security dialogue involving generals, but the Chinese military doesn't appear interested. Now, according to the American Department of Defense, China has refused to hold high-level talks on more than 10 occasions. Can you talk us through what's going on, please? Uh, Of course. The official reason, or I would say excuse, given by Beijing is the ongoing sanctions, still U.S. sanctions still on General Li Shangfu, or the Chinese Defense Secretary, or Defense Minister. And those sanctions relate to a purchase when he was still the head of the armament departments of the People's Liberation Army. And he was in charge of purchasing, procuring Russian-made missiles and, uh, and uh, l- l- sort of land-to-air missiles and, uh, and o- other defensive equipments. Those equipments, Russia, Iran, North Korea, were under, already under another set of U.S. sanctions. So one, uh, Li Shangfu, by ordering these equipments, breached U.S. sanctions, and hence he himself was put, on, put under U.S. sanctions. That was the official reason given by Beijing. Uh, not to engage in talks. This is great power rivalry at its most intense, isn't it? From Beijing's side, in this great power rivalry you described, they increasingly feel they're on the uh, weaker or the the less advantageous side in this competition, in this rivalry. For example, in high-tech competition, in the chips war, uh, silicon chips, in the financial uh, transactions around the world, and all, as well as in international affairs. All the East Asian neighbors are now turning to the U.S. for protection, for alliance, and then they probably see, perceive, U.S. really want this military-to-military contact. So quid pro quo, what do I get? This is almost like a bargaining power for them. And uh, by keeping it slightly out of reach of the U.S., from Beijing's point of view, they may be able to get something out of this tension at this moment. Beijing also sees, similar to North Korea and lots of other uh, authoritarian regimes, secrecy itself, by not communicating with you, in itself, is, it's got power. Washington keeps talking about wanting guardrails. So if we somehow, from Beijing's side, denies that possibility of you having a clear guardrail, and that just gives Beijing that little bit more freedom to play with 
the, the passing spy of uh, Taiwan Strait or you know uh, buzzing U.S. planes or ships, those brinksmanship games uh, would just give the U.S. that little bit of more headache. That's very interesting because within the past few months, Beijing has hosted high-level conversations with some very senior American politicians, Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, and Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, were both given cordial welcomes in, in, in China. And in fact, Anthony Blinken said we should have this high-level uh, military dialogue. So why is it okay to have a dialogue with the politicians, but not between the generals? The generals, uh, as we touched on a little bit in the, in the first bit of this conversation, was because there is this existing sanctions on General uh, Li Shangfu himself. So this is almost like if you do not take off my sanctions, which is not going to talk to you. Also, we know this is what you want, so we're not giving it to you. I think that's more that some people can even describe as a more like a children's level game playing and uh, but that's more the visible thing but at the same time behind the scene uh, Beijing do uh, there is a, a sense Beijing does feel it offers them some power and the rhetoric from the American side is quite interesting as you said President Biden's talked about guardrails it wasn't a term which was familiar to me before but it suggests I think um, something that goes on the side of a road on a mountain uh, to prevent a car falling off perhaps if you've got two cars racing along a mountain track, these guardrails become ever more important. The other, the other phrase relates to the idea of miscalculations or misunderstandings or mistakes. Well, I mean, you know, a mistake is dropping a cup of tea on the floor. What we're talking about here is a potential conflict leading to a war between two great powers, Howard. I think most of uh, our audience were familiar with the first Cold War between the Soviet Union and the USA. Towards the middle stretch of that Cold War, US, Washington and Moscow had developed a set of what, what, what we call now guardrails. So essentially, the rivalry can be uh, going through proxy wars, can be through uh, spy wars and all sorts of other competitions. But the two big powers have a set of rules that are avoids head-to-head -head nuclear, eventually Armageddon. And uh, I think very much so if you read all the uh, US government papers and policy papers, as well as researchers, scholars' papers, lots of people are pointing towards this type of setup. They are not calling it Cold War II, but in this set of great power competition with China, US also wants similar guardrails so that there won't be a direct head-to-head -head, uh, military conflict between US and China. But at the same time, you can compete as uh, fiercely uh, as both sides can do. So I think that's something from Washington's point of view, that's what they're trying to achieve. But from Beijing's side, at this very moment, they're possibly the weaker, they perceive themselves as the weaker side of the in the competition. That's why they do not necessarily want Washington to get all what it wants. So I'm thinking about the value of diplomacy and dialogue. You mentioned Taiwan just now, and I know that you visited Taiwan last year. Could you see a situation in which representatives from the United States, China and Taiwan sit around a table and try to reach 
some sort of substantive agreement which lowers the risk of conflict? The uh, simple answer to your question is no. There is no way I can see three sides, US, Taiwan, and, and China all sit down together at one table, at least not officially, not in the open. And uh, because China does not recognize Taiwan as an equal, uh, the Beijing government does not recognize the government in Taipei as an equal. So there's n- no way they will sit, especially with a third party, on the table with Taiwan. That would not happen. It's possible for U.S. and China to sit down and talk about Taiwan, and U.S. and Taiwan sit together, talk about China relations, and also representatives of China mainland and Taiwan sit down in a mutually agreed kind of format to talk about how do we sort out certain things. Those three scenarios are possible, but for three parties to sit down, a tripartite kind of a meeting is impossible to see. Inevitably, when it comes to any discussion in relation to defence and security in the current era, we have to acknowledge the ongoing war in Ukraine following the Russian invasion. The Chinese offered to instigate a dialogue there. They wanted to try to settle the conflict, they said, and they put forward what was described as a political solution. It came up at a few international meetings actually for a relatively short period of time, I think just for a few weeks, because the Americans dismissed it. And without the Americans showing any interest in it, the plan came to nothing. I think, if I recall correctly, that the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, called it a trap. Well, you know, given what happened there, I don't suppose it's made it any easier to bring China to the table on any other issues. I will have to say it's really complicated because... China's relationships with both uh, Moscow and Kiev is not as simple as what people think here, uh, especially when you just read the uh, mainstream media that somehow Beijing is a staunch ally of Moscow and uh, Beijing uh, lets, uh, you know, pass pass on Moscow's uh, propaganda. That is true to an extent, but Beijing, before the outbreak of the war, current war, was also a very important, or the other way, Ukraine was also a very important strategic partner to Beijing. And uh, Beijing secured many of its very important uh, Soviet, old Soviet-style military systems uh, through Ukraine, the uh, first aircraft carrier, for example, and uh, many other uh, MiG, as well as uh, Sukhoi, uh, jet engines and uh, all from all through Ukraine. Ukraine also supplies lots of uh, agricultural goods to China and uh, is one of the uh, still is on Xi Jinping's grand plan to connect the continental trade and logistic routes, the Belt and Road system. Ukraine is a very big stop. So all that, there's no uh, so China in that sense on one side, does not want to see their anti-U.S. ally, Russia, or Putin's Russia, fail, because that will uh, mean, strategically, Beijing loses a major backer on the uh, Eurasian continent. At the same time, uh, China does not want to see Ukraine, this area they invested heavily, completely falls to the what they call the American sphere of influence, and all of a sudden, they have no say and no inroads anymore. That would be 
also something they want to avoid. Let's talk about some other figures within China's top leadership. When Antony Blinken went to China in June, he met two Chinese diplomats, Wang Yi and Xin Gang, as well as President Xi Jinping. Can you say something about the role of these three men in forging China's foreign policy? Well, obviously, Xi Jinping being the big boss, and uh, he's the ultimate decider in China, especially given the post-20th Congress uh, new power structure. There's no other. Now, you and I are used to doing live television and radio programs. Obviously, one of the uh, distinctive features of a podcast is that we record it and then people listen to it a few days, a few weeks, perhaps even months later. <laughs> but let's pretend we're on live BBC radio at the moment and we're talking about Ching Gang. We're recording on Friday, the 21st of uh, July, 2023. Now, the newspapers are full of stories to say he's vanished. He's, he, he hasn't made any public appearance for several weeks. And there's been a lot of speculation about what's been going on. It could be that by the time the listeners find this podcast, he's returned to public life. But let's uh, go with the speculation as to where we are now. What do you think's happened? Something has happened to him, because it is definitely not normal uh, for a, a high-level official like him to not only uh, disappear all of a sudden from public view, and also when domestic and foreign channels question, query, repeatedly when uh, coverages of his story, all sorts of rumors and start to spread literally all over the world and not a single solid response coming out of Beijing is this is definitely not normal. So that's something we can say with certainty, something has happened to him. But whether that is because of a some type of mysterious long-term illness or sudden illness, uh, that possibility, I guess, fades as time passes. But, and uh, more and more uh, signs show some type of uh, internal political struggle may have been the reason for his uh, quote-unquote disappearance. Well, that's a bit ominous, isn't it? Oh, it's a real mystery, isn't it? Thanks very much, Howard. That was Howard Yang, editor of the BBC's Chinese service. This podcast is made by the SOAS China Institute, and you can find out more about our courses and research at our website, soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.